Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everyone. This is Denise Brown, your host of Your Caregiving Journey, a talk show that helps you as you care for family members and friends. It's August 30th. It's noon Central Time. And our guest, Claire Day, is going to join us in just a few moments. Just a couple quick updates. Our Caregiving Art Show is in September. It's our sixth annual art show that features artwork created by carees and family caregivers and anyone impacted in a family by a caregiving situation. And that includes kids and grandkids. We actually have two categories, kids and adults. So you can submit your artwork to display in our caregiving art show, which begins September 11th. And the deadline to submit your artwork is September 8th. And artwork is anything that you feel shows your creative side. So it could be something you draw or paint, or it could be something that you make. It could be the cake that you decorated that you think this is outstanding. Take a photo of it and submit it to our art show. We'd love to display your creative side. You can find out more when you go to caregiving.com. And then just a quick reminder, we're doing great with our National Caregiving Conference, which happens December 2nd and 3rd. And Claire is going to be there. She's going to actually be part of a couple panels. And I just would love to give out a quick shout out to our sponsors who have been so generous in supporting this very first conference. So Eli Lilly, Bright Star Care, eCare Diary, Seniors Blue Book, Senior Link. We are so grateful to these sponsors that are making it possible. You can find out more about our conference by going to caregiving.com. You'll see the trending line. Just click on National Caregiving Conference. You can see our agenda and you can register. Registration is open. If you're a professional who works with family caregivers and interested in attending, you want to register before the early bird rate expires in mid-September. So again, all the information about our first annual National Caregiving Conference is on caregiving.com. Okay, those are the updates. So joining me this morning, this afternoon, is Claire Day. She's Senior Vice President of the Alzheimer's Association Delaware Valley Chapter, and she is our dementia care expert. She joins us once a month to share insights, perspectives, and information. Hi, Claire. How are you? Good afternoon, Denise. I'm well. How are you? I'm really looking forward to December. Yes, I am too. (laughs) Good. (laughs) And you know what I did a couple weeks ago? I checked the Farmer's Almanac to check the weather. Oh, good, because it's not coming if it's snowing. (laughs) And the Farmer's Almanac said it would not be snowing in early December. Oh, good. Okay. That's what I'm banking on. That's what I've crossed my fingers about. And I am so excited that you're going to be able to be a part of our conference, too. So it'll be fun. I think what's going to be great is that we're going to share not only insights and perspectives, but we're also going to share fun because we've got some fun activities planned during the day on Saturday, December 3rd. So today we're going to talk about policy updates because, holy Hannah, it seems like there is 
so much going on these days in terms of really looking at what states are doing to help persons with Alzheimer's disease and their family caregivers, as well as on the national level. So Claire, first of all, what has been going on that it seems like this flurry of activity is so different these days than any kind of flurry of activity we've seen in the past? Well, you, you couldn't be more right in that I would say through the, uh, through the, uh, the advancement of the National Alzheimer's Project Act, or NAPA as it is known as, which of course was that first national plan to address Alzheimer's disease in the United States that became law in, in 2011, since then as, as, an, as an organization, we have become very coordinated and deliberate in the way that we deliver policy messages throughout the nation. And so when we go to Congress, whether it's on a state or federal level, um, or I should say specifically on the federal level, when, when, when individual chapters and states are visiting with their federal legislators, we're making the same ask, and we kind of all come up with what these national priorities are going to look like for each year so that we can achieve that vision of uh, the funding increase. And, and, you know, up until recently, the Alzheimer's Association, or I'm sorry, excuse me, Alzheimer's disease has been, and, and really still is to this day, tremendously underfunded. Um, back in 2011, the Alzheimer's disease received, um, I'm just trying to pull up the number. <laughs> Not terrible. I thought I could do it really quickly. Um, oh, that's okay. Because it's it's four hundred thousand. Uh, excuse me, four hundred million. Um, four hundred million um, dollars, which sounds like a lot of money to you and I, um, but in reality, uh, it's not. And and when we talk about. Um, where we've come since we sort of started this really coordinated effort, it's, it's, uh, it was $448 million in fiscal year 2011. Talk about where, what we've been able to incrementally increase over the years. Y y we can see this sort of trajectory of success. And so in 2012, we, we, we saw a slight increase, $56 million, which, again, to you and I sounds like a lot of money. But when, when you're talking about research and when you're talking about research compared to other diseases, it really is um, not much. Um, and in 2013, we saw $82 million increase. But then, all of a sudden, 14, 15, 16, we started to see momentum build. Um, in, in fiscal year uh, uh we saw that record uh, $150 million, um, which you have to remember is triple what we received three years previous. So just in three years, we were able to sort of triple the increase um, that put us just over the 500, uh, $500 million mark for research. And today, um, we sit at just below a billion dollars, $936 million dollars. Um, invested in in the federal um, in federal funds to the NIH or NIA. So from 2011, 448 million to 936 million, and and of course this year, 2016, we saw that 350 million um, increase added into uh, Obama's um, fiscal year 16 
omnibus bill, which was tremendous. And in 17, the year we're currently in now, both the House and the Senate have proposed additional funding for research. Um, one is for $350 million, one is for $400 million. Now, we won't get both. We're going to only get, get one. But even if we get the, the lower end, we're still talking about another $350 million increase in, in the um, budget for funding research this year. Um, which will put us over that billion um, mark and finally put us in a position where we can start to um, really see um, some of these, uh, these research uh, projects be truly funded at the, at the rate of speed that they need to be to get us closer to a cure. And you have to remember, this funding is so important because clinical t trials take – 12 years to, to develop from start to finish. So when there's a delay in funding or when there's a lack of funding, um, it's only going to make that 12-year span take even longer. So that kind of blows me away that, you've, that there's been that kind of an impact in three years. Yeah. So you had mentioned that the Alzheimer's Association had developed initiatives. Could you tell us what those are? Where is it putting its energy? Sure. So, and, and it's really priorities, policy priorities that we think are important um, for us to look at each year. And so, and like I said, I think our success is when we, when we all shout the same message. And I say shout because when you're talking about Washington, D.C., and you're talking about mm -hmm. um, policy issues, we do have to use our voices, and, and sometimes the loudest voice wins. Um, yes. And so um, for this year, what we want to – obviously, every year we, there's an Alzheimer's research funding request. Um, so the legislation this year for that Alzheimer's um, – the, the funding is, again, to, to look for another, um, another nice chunk, that 350 or $400 million, to get us to – um, that one billion mark, but then there's three other um, policy initiatives that really focus on well, two really, and then one is just looking at Napa um, that that actually look at care, right? Because the funding is, re is is important, and we know how important funding is to the trajectory of this disease. But we also know that if that magic pill was found tomorrow we're still going to have 5 million Americans that are living with the disease that probably can't benefit from a treatment if it's developed tomorrow that we're going to need to provide um, person-centered and quality care to over the years. So this, the next one is called the HOPE Act or the Health Outcomes Planning and Education Act. And what the HOPE Act would do, it's legislation that would provide Medicare coverage for comprehensive care planning services following a diagnosis of dementia, and they would be available to both the person with the disease as well as their care plan. It would ensure that the documentation of a dementia diagnosis and any care planning provided is included in that person's medical record, and it would require the Department of Health and Human Services to educate providers about this benefit and how to identify barriers um, that individuals face in, assess in accessing care, care planning. Now, the HOPE Act has is, is been around um, for some time. We know that 
Um, 89% of Americans want to know if they have Alzheimer's disease from from some research that we've done. And 50% of Americans who who have it don't know it. And what the HOPE app can do is actually close that gap so that those who have the diagnosis are actually being told about their diagnosis and are being given a treatment plan around it. Because oftentimes what we hear from physicians or from health care providers is they don't know what to tell their patients. And so sometimes they just don't tell them anything. Um, and But what's really interesting about the HOPE Act now and this momentum, of course, is the recent changes proposed by the Center for Medicare Services that could go into effect as early as, as January 1st that would allow for, for health care professionals to bill for care planning. So CMS is saying we're not waiting for, the, mm. for legislators to pass the HOPE Act. We see the value in this. Um, and so there's actually, and, and, and the, you'll start to see more, there's actually, um, if you go to ALZ.org, there's an opportunity for family members and, and caregivers and per, people living with the disease to actually uh, share, share their input to CMS about how, how they should be, how and who should be able to deliver that care planning service. So I would definitely recommend people look into that. But, you know, basically what they're saying is, yeah, we're, we're, we're ready to start making sure that Alzheimer's disease and, and related dementias are valued as treatable. Um, and we know treatable is a, a varied word, right? It's not treatable mm-hmm. and curable are two different things, but providing that, that um, care and support is going to ease the burden of a family caregiver throughout the trajectory of the disease. So let me ask you this. So we screen for other diseases, but we don't screen for mm-hmm. dementia. So I just talked to a colleague this morning who's concerned about his sister who's in her mid-70s, who's had periods of confusion for the past year, who just had a colonoscopy. So why is she being screened, having a test to see if she has colon cancer, and yet she has memory loss, and she has not been screened for the reason for that memory loss. Right. What happens so, that we don't do that? So, and we can screen for memory loss through, for people 65 and older through the annual Medicare wellness exam, which um, everybody over the age of 65 that's covered by Medicare should be going in annually for what they call their annual, annual Medicare wellness checkup. And that it's, it's sort of, you know, like their general check-in, their, their, their check-in for the year of how they're doing. Now, the problem with the Medicare wellness check is the it, – it, and I don't want to speak um, – Right. Sort of you want to be out of turn yes. here, and I want right. to be. Um, so, based on your yes. experience, what <laughs> would you say? <laughs> so, I yeah. think based on my experience, one of the problems is it's probably not a high reimbursement rate, okay. and so what okay. happens during that, that annual Medicare wellness visit is if the doctor then says, "So, Denise, is anything else? Do you have any other?" concerns and you have a, a you know pain in your knee 
to bill for a, a knee visit is probably going to be a higher reimbursable rate through Medicare than the the Medicare wellness checkup. And so then all of a sudden now we're we're billing for a knee injury and we're not doing the full um the full assessment visit of what should be done. But there are toolkits and there are there is a, a cognitive impairment um aspect of the Medicare annual wellness visit that's been around since the Affordable Air Care Act came into play in 2011. So I think that the CMS change is going to be a game changer from a reimbursement standpoint because now physicians will be able to um, reimburse for some of this non-medical, what they view as non-medical interventions, right? So um, it really could be a turning point for for how we go about care and support for people with the disease. And then the second the second ask that's happening through um, through our federal ask this year is an, is the Palliative and Hospice Care Act, which is called uh, you know Washington D.C. loves acronyms. It's called Pachita. <laughs> and what this would do would increase you like that? Um, what it would do is actually increase palliative care and hospice training for healthcare pro- professionals as well as launch a national campaign to inform patients and families about the benefits of palliative care and enhance research on improving the delivery of palliative care. Um, we know hospice is, is underutilized for people with dementia and yet an extremely valuable tool, but we also need a competent work por- workforce. And, and that, um, it, so this is going to put some, some potential extra training into the workforce around those that provide palliative and hospice care um, to ensure that um, we're providing the best um, care possible um, and focusing on you know, managing and easing symptoms, reducing pain and stress, increasing comfort, et cetera. So I wondered if you could pull the curtain so that we could see what's behind the wizard. So, <laughs> <laughs> so all of this does not happen overnight. It doesn't happen without a lot of work. How does the Alzheimer's Association organize a movement like this, which right. is huge. Well, we we have several several ways that we do that, and I think they they the the, the largest way we do that is annually we meet in Washington D.C. for a three day public policy forum, oh. where advocates learn about all of these uh. opportunities, and then mm. on the third day of the forum, Wednesday, we call that our day on the hill, and we we. We turn Capitol Hill purple, and every uh, every uh, chapter and, and people from different regions go and visit with their federal um, legislators in Washington, in their Washington D.C. office. Um, it really is an amazing uh, an amazing conference. I, I've been to the Day on the Hill for many many years, uh, going just to the day. This was actually the first year I attended the three day conference. Um, and it really is remarkable to see the stories that come together um, and those voices being heard loud and clear. Um, we like to say that we, we need to beat our purple drum to mm. get that message across to Congress about the importance. And that's where I say this is part of that coordinated ask, right? Years ago, 
every state probably had different priorities for what they um, and what they might have asked for, and we've gotten very, very specific about the language that we use um, and the message that we give to our legislators, so that they're all hearing the same information and the most up-to-date information. And then throughout the year, we follow that up with in-state visits to those local legislators. We have a number of uh, Alzheimer's, what we call Alzheimer's ambassadors, and these are some of our best advocates that either have a relationship with or have an expertise with a specific member of Congress, and they're sort of that liaison to that member of Congress, and they work with the chapter staff and their congressional team made up of other advocates who make periodic visits throughout the year. So we don't let that message die. Um, we also follow up with um, email campaigns when there's a, a specific ask when something big comes. For example, if something needed to move on HOPE, on the HOPE Act, um, we, would, we would blast an email and ask all of our advocates to send that email to their local legislator. And we have a great email system set up that it's very simple when you get the ask from, from the Alzheimer's Association, you literally click on the button and it will generate, populate all of the information that you need to send to your local legislator and, and allow you to personalize it if you happen to know um, he or she. And then the other piece that I think is really important is um, being able to use social media to promote uh, the importance of advocacy and the importance of some of these um, issues. Because I don't, you know, pol politics, especially in today's world, in today's political environment, we get lost in a lot of chatter that really turns people off, I think, it turns some people off. And what's important is for us to make sure that people understand that policy can work. There is a process that has been successful. And that, that trajectory of funding is, is a direct example of that. And I remember when, um, when I used to visit the legislators back, you know, when I first got involved with the Alzheimer's Association, so we're talking 15, 20 years ago, and we used to come down to Washington, D.C., and we had a legislative aide once say to us that, Back in the day, because of course I'm dating myself, this is when we would have to call because not everybody had email. Um, and you would, they would literally, they would have an intern at the phone every day and they would sort of start like a check mark sheet of people that called about specific issues. And at the end of the day, the issue with the most calls, the issue with the most check boxes got the legislators' attention. And so we're able to do that now very easily through um, through the magic of social media and through these email communications, and then really be able to follow it up. And what's so important is those personal stories. And while our staff go on some of these visits, they don't speak in these visits. They may answer questions specific to the disease or maybe clarify points in the legislation. But we have amazing advocates that have awesome stories to tell and our legislators need to hear those stories. They need to see the impact that this disease has on everyday life in their congressional district. And advocacy is the way we do that. I had gone to an event on Thursday evening with my mom that was sponsored by the Alzheimer's Association chapter in the, in the area I live in conjunction with AARP. And it was oh, great. 
Yeah. So it was a caregiver's night out. My mom was invited, <laughs> which we could not figure out how that happened. But anyway, so we got a free dinner and that's what she wanted. So we went and um, it was at a restaurant that's in our neighborhood. We had our representative there from the state of Illinois, from uh, the state of Illinois is just a mess. So it was a representative from uh, Congress, Illinois. And so we had a presentation about family caregivers. And then we launched into a discussion about legislation that's happening in the state and policy updates. And it just had happened that it was just after the state of Illinois passed the the legislation that allowed employees to use their sick leave to care for a family member. So that was part of what they were able to present as well, that they were able to actually get this legislation passed, which in the state of Illinois is like a miracle, a miracle. And I think part of what I like about what you guys are doing is that you've got your, your federal platform and then you've got your state and local. And I think it's important that it's all, because I'll tell you in the state of Illinois, we are just in such bad shape. It's all about cutting and right. there's no way to get anything really passed. And so the right. federal, the federal outreach is, becomes that much more critical. Right, and what, and really, there's a, a big movement uh, for states to create um, state Alzheimer's disease plans, which create an infrastructure and accountability necessary to confront the disease, um, not just from an economic standpoint, but from a social input impact standpoint. And so, um, the the problem with state legislation is it's all over the map as far as yes. progress. And, and yes. you know, we cover three states here. We cover New Jersey, Delaware, and southeastern Pennsylvania. In our territory, New Jersey was the first state to create legislation mandating the creation of a state plan on Alzheimer's disease. Since then, Delaware and Pennsylvania have not only created the legislation, they've written the plan, they've edited the plan, they've published the plan. We still don't have that in New Jersey. So it, 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 they're just, their legislations all work a little bit differently, and sometimes things get done very quickly, and other times things don't. And so state advocacy is, is also very important. So I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that up because um, – all of the chapters are working with local um, state, state and local officials as well to ensure that they're getting the same messages and that a lot of these pieces can be woven into sort of a state plan, which, which will provide training, care, um, you know, the sort of it's, – it's not so much the, the research funding. It's, it's the lower level. It's the, it's the, it's the community-based programs that are going to have a true impact on the day-to-day lives making sure that transportation is addressed for adult day programs and for services and that services are covered and that services are available. I mean, in Pennsylvania, it's a great example. We have two metropolitan cities, um, and in between, a lot of 
down to cover that's yeah. um, rural in a lot of places. And so access to services, those are all things that can be accomplished through a really good state plan. And I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Minnesota. Minnesota has one of the best, if not the best, state plans in the nation. Um, they have a program called Act On Minnesota. And if anyone's interested in, in really seeing a great state plan, I would definitely – Google Act on Minnesota. Um, they've done some really remarkable things. Um, and in different communities, we're starting to see um, their positive effects have impact locally. Um, so it's, it really is um, the state piece is, is a little bit of a harder bear because every state runs so differently. I mean, in Delaware, uh, Katie Macklin, who's our associate, uh, Senior Director of Advocacy, is on a first-name basis with the governor who calls her out when she's at an event that he's at because he sees her in the audience. That would never happen in Pennsylvania, right? It would just It's different. It's a different legislature. So, so there's a couple things that come to mind. One is how important it is to have your local representative know about your issue and then educate Absolutely. that local representative about what's available to help you and what isn't available to help you in the community. Because the representative who, who spoke talked about going door to door, basically canvassing for votes. And because he was going to door, door to door, he encountered an individual living alone with dementia. So wow. he needs to be educated about what then to do. And the other part of right. it is then you educate the, the representative about here's where you can go for help. But you know what? I can't go here for help because, it's inaccessible, it's not well-funded, it doesn't exist, and that's important as well. I just, think, I just think it's such a fascinating time. Don't you think, Claire? Because I do. This is, it's not anything we've ever seen before. No, and, you know, momentum is building. I, I, I truly believe momentum is building, and it, it is a really amazing um, time with the uh, – with, with to be in Alzheimer's, to be in, in Alzheimer's. So it really, um, things are, are moving. Things are really moving, and I think we have um, an opportunity to be in, in the running with that movement and really be at the forefront of it. I think so, too. Things are changing for the positive. And Absolutely. How powerful is it to be part of that positive change? It's really amazing. Yeah. Okay, Claire, this was awesome. Thank you so much for another great show. Oh, well, thank you, as always. And just a reminder that Claire typically joins me on... <laughs> okay, Claire. <laughs> it's the fourth, the fourth Thursday. Thursday. Oh, God. All these years, and I still struggle with that. It's the fourth Thursday of every month at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time, unless we have a schedule conflict. (laughs) But typically, that's when we do it. That's when we do it. Okay, Claire, thank you so much. Have a great Labor Day weekend. Thank you. You too. And thanks, everybody, so much for listening. I'm Denise Brown. Be sure to stop by caregiving.com. Let us know how you're doing, because we always love to know. Take care. Bye-bye.